0: 2020, and I am Natalia Castro from Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Today's show will focus on how federal employees can integrate program integrity efforts into their office. This is perfectly timed with the passage of a new law impacting program integrity this week, and me and today's panel will dive into that and much more in a few moments. First, let me start by introducing our three in-studio guests. First, let me welcome Linda Miller. Linda is a principal and fraud risk mitigation practice lead at Grand Thornton. Good morning, Linda, and thanks for being here. Good morning, Talia. Thanks for having me. Next, we have Andrea Peoples. Andrea serves as the senior policy advisor for enterprise risk management at the Small Business Administration. Andrea, welcome to the show and thanks for joining.
2: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: Finally, we have Rebecca Shea. Rebecca is the director on the Forensics, Audits, and Investigative Service Team at the Government Accountability Office. Good morning, Rebecca, and thanks for chatting with us.
3: Yep, good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: Before we dive in, I want to remind everyone that FedTalk is brought to you by Long-Term Care Partners, LLC. Long-Term Care Partners administers the Office of Personnel Management-sponsored federal long-term care insurance program. To learn more, visit ltcfeds.com today. This is gonna be a really fun show. It's also a really relevant show. Uh, The government is constantly looking for ways to mitigate fraud, waste, and abuse. But I think before we start a conversation about mitigating and reducing fraud, waste, and abuse, we need to understand what that is. And I think there's an important distinction we need to make up front here, which is uh, what fraud is and what fraud risk is. And Andrea, I know this is really hits on what you work on. And I was wondering if you could introduce us to the topic with that differentiation,
2: yeah, thank you, Natalia. Yeah, I think it's very important that, Um, Everyone understands that fraud, waste, and abuse is not uh, one word. Uh, Before taking over this position, I definitely thought it was. I would say fraud, waste, and abuse. So whenever I would see anything, I would just say FWA, fraud, waste, and abuse. Um, But everybody needs to understand that it is three different things. Although waste and abuse can turn into fraud, it necessarily does not mean that it's going to be fraud. So fraud is basically the intentional act, right? To deceive someone, right? Waste is basically squandering resources. Abuse is basically misusing someone's authority. What I get involved with is fraud risk. And fraud risk is basically the, vulner- the vulnerability that an organization faces uh, when someone can combine the three elements of the fraud triangle. So I actually have for- four words when I go out and I speak, uh, you know, whether it's out there in public or within the agency, that we've got fraud, waste, abuse, and fraud risk. But I think my partner here, Rebecca, she. Actually Actually, has uh, a couple of key words that's even more important here to help you to understand the difference between the three.
3: Right. Yeah, a little uh, helpful mnemonic, I think. What the? Um, So when you think about fraud, waste, and abuse, the the three key words: willful, thoughtless, and excessive. So fraud involves willful misrepresentation. So if you keep that, that's the W part of the what, Um, and the the part waste. Involves thoughtless or careless expenditure consumption of federal resources, and then the abuse—that's the the e part of the the—is the excessive or improper use of something. So yeah, if you keep in mind what the for fraud, waste, and abuse, willful, thoughtless, and excessive—that can help you keep them organized. And just to to um, add to what Andrea said about that fourth component, fraud risk—that is something you know near and dear to my heart as well. Fraud risk is in the area that program managers are responsible for. Yes, you may not uh, be the one investigating, that's the IG's role, that's the DOJ's role, but yes, the program managers are responsible for managing the fraud risk. And, you know, when you start looking at something you may not know, as you said, whether it's abuse, it's waste, or it's fraud, um, but you do know from seeing something a little bit fishy that there's a risk there. So.
0: And if you're a federal employee listening right now, you may be thinking, I'm a little concerned that I don't know more about this, but you wouldn't be alone. In fact, uh, the Senior Executives Association and Grant Thornton teamed together on a program integrity survey to kind of figure out where the gaps in uh, program integrity literacy were. And I think the findings were really interesting. Linda, could you speak a little bit about to what that was like?
4: Sure. Yeah, we um, initiated the survey last summer. We got about 150 responses. Uh, about half of them were SESers and the others were between GS-12 and GS-15. Um, and some of the results were surprising to me. Um, as you mentioned earlier, I lead the fraud risk practice at Grand Thornton and before that I was spent um, 10 years at the Government Accountability Office and was the um, principal leader of the um, GAO's fraud risk management framework from which the, um, the, the law that we'll talk about in a minute um, came, sprung from. And so I've been doing this work now for many, many years. And I think I was still caught off guard by the responses in the survey where a lot of people um, really didn't understand what program integrity meant. Um, They were confused about the differences between fraud, waste, and abuse. Um, And then we gave some examples. We wanted to understand really whether or not they could just describe whether they knew it. We wanted to provide some examples and ask them to identify them. And about 30% of the respondents misidentified the different um, examples that we gave them. And it just really highlighted uh, the need for what Rebecca was just talking about for to educate the federal government, especially leadership, about what what are these things and how can you stop them. But I will add that when it comes to fraud risk, you know, um, we often, people get caught a lot in that, in the, in the definitions and in my opinion, whether somebody is willfully uh, attempting to deceive or whether it's inadvertent, the fact is that they are they're they're exploiting a loophole or a vulnerability and the goal with a fraud risk effort is to identify where those vulnerabilities are and close them down. And then whether that person was in, in, intending to or not, you've reduced that vulnerability. So for my purposes, I'm less concerned about whether someone's motive is is nefarious. I'm more concerned about whether there are opportunities for somebody to get something that they're not entitled to.
0: And as we move through this show, I know we're going to talk a lot more about What those loopholes look like and how program leaders can really lead initiatives within their offices on identifying and closing those loopholes. But before we do that, there is, you know, lawmakers have been concerned about this issue uh, for quite some time, and there have been two major pieces of legislation: the Fraud Reduction and Data Analytics Act of 2015, which we all call F.R.I.D.A., um, and the more recently, actually this week, passed Payment Integrity Information Act. And Rebecca, if you could speak a little bit to what the requirements are and what
3: the landscapes, due to these two legislations, kind of look like. Sure, sure. Um, So just a little bit of context for this, uh, why I think it's important to talk about both of them. We've gotten a number of questions from people. Is Frida repealed? Is, you know is, are we no longer required to do this? And I don't know whether it's, you know excitement or disappointment, <laughs> but um, just to put it out there, FriDA still stands mm-hmm. but in a new form in the Program Integrity Act. And so under FriDA, um, there are, we, we saw basically three key requirements. Agencies were required to develop uh, financial and administrative controls for managing fraud risk and all of the things that are associated with that. They were also required to report on their progress in implementing those controls in their annual financial reports, and that was for three years following the the issuance, the enactment of FRIDA. And then they were also to be engaged with OMB in a working group for sharing best practices, um, sharing their experiences on how to manage fraud risk and developing a, a library for data analytics for fraud detection. Now, um, when you look at Section 3357 of, I'm going to call it the Integrity Act because Pia, I don't know, that's not quite <laughs> that so great. Um, doesn't roll off a tongue like Frida. But the Integrity Act, um, Section 3357, essentially says those first two things that agencies are responsible for doing they carry over. Mm-hmm. So you're still supposed to be doing those. One of the things that um, you know we're still getting the details on this, but it looks like that working group still is um, important is going to be in place, but it's just going to broaden a little bit to include all these other program integrity uh, individuals, issues, and uh, leading practices. So same concept, but broadened a little bit.
0: I want to dive more into the Integrity Act, but we are right up against our first break. So you guys are listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We'll continue our discussion with Linda, Andrea, and Rebecca right after a quick word from our sponsor.
1: Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit LTCFEDS.com today. That's LTCFEDS.com.
0: Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are just diving into the importance of complying with program integrity laws. And Linda, I want to pass it to you to talk a little bit more about the Integrity Act that was just
4: passed. Sure. First of all, I like that we're now coining it the Integrity Act. Thank you, Rebecca. <laughs> I like that, too. Um, I'm really excited about the Act, actually. I think um, it does clear up a lot of confusion around, um, in my opinion, keeping improper payments, which a lot of the—the in, the Integrity Act pulls all of the IPIRA Improper Payments Elimination and Reduction Act, uh, requirements, and puts them together with the FRIDA. And I think that makes a lot of sense, because agencies sometimes silo their improper payments efforts and their fraud efforts. And I think there's it makes a lot of sense to put those together, and the Act does that. And it also, um, and we'll talk a little bit about this, I think, later when we talk more about data analytics, but it talks it really encourages agencies to use data more. And I think that's a Im- really, really important um, component of the Act. And so hopefully, uh, and the working group that that Rebecca mentioned um, is going to be expanded. I think OMB has done a great job um, of building out this, this cross-agency priority goal, um, getting payments right. Um, and really focusing on what they're calling payment accuracy. And I think that bringing all these concepts together into one act is going to be really beneficial for agencies. It's going to help clear up some confusion.
0: Absolutely, and I want to dive a little bit more into the data analytics portion of that. Like you mentioned, it really calls upon agencies to better use the data that they already have at hand. Can you speak a little bit about either how agencies can do that or, or why it's so important?
4: Um, I can, but I can start by saying that agencies are struggling with doing it, and I think GAO um, illustrated that in a report they put out uh, about a year ago um, when they did a survey. The, the survey that you mentioned that we did with the Senior Executives Association really backed up what GAO found. We've also been doing some follow-up interviews with some of the respondents, and we're hearing the same message across all of these, which is we don't really know how to do this. We don't have the skills. We don't have the resources Um you know, and, and analytics, data analytics is is a, a very technical thing. And so I think what's happening right now is a lot of agencies are trying to figure out. They, I think the, the message has been received that data analytics is a good thing to do, mm-hmm. that it's the best way. And the um, Association of Certified Fraud Examiners found that those organizations that put in, in practice um, proactive data analytics saw a 54 percent reduction in the total duration and uh, loss of a fraud scheme. So there's real evidence to support the the benefits of doing data analytics, but most agencies are really struggling with finding the people and um, to be able to do that, the skill sets, and then also there's the the, the availability of data. That's another problem.
2: And yeah, Linda, you're you're so correct with that. I know with uh, SBA, uh, we actually have a chief data officer. We've just got some data scientists uh, on board. Um, But the first question is, where is the data? What data do we have? And so that's what they're kind of looking at, kind of pilot programs where they can look and see where they can start somewhere. Um, So it is a challenge. You know, we don't know what's out there. And then also with ERM, the challenge is also breaking down walls, right? No one wants to share their data. Everybody has their own data in their little cube, and no one wants to talk across the table. So it's the same thing. We have to break down silos to be able to look at the data so that we can examine and share the information.
0: Yeah, it definitely seems to require a larger cultural shift that I know we're going to get more into later about how we can establish employee buy in and the importance of that in focusing more on risk. Now, the GAO fraud framework does outline some opportunity areas where, the, you know, what I viewed as. Somewhat simple tasks that agencies could perhaps use to get a kickstart on um, examining their data data analytics. Rebecca, do you want to speak a little bit to what that framework
3: offers? Uh, well, just um, I think one of the things that is reflected in what both Linda and Andrea were saying is that there's there's a lot of um, uh, in, maybe intimidation or confusion, um, but I think the important thing, and the framework outlines this, is that. You can start small, mm-hmm. um, you don't need to be super fancy. I know that um, there's a lot of talk out there about AI and machine learning mm-hmm. and we don't need <laughs> to go there just yet. You know, Let's just start with some very basic things like matching and mining. And quite honestly, that's a lot of what GAO does when we do our audit work, we mm-hmm. do matching and mining. Maybe we'll do a little bit, something a little bit fancy like a network analysis, which still is fundamentally matching and mining. But you can start small with those things. The important thing is look at where you already have known fraud risks, you know, known fraud cases, and then you know, break those down. Look at how that happened. Look at where you might be able to see those control failures and how you might be able to see those in your data, and then start building up from there. So start small. Start with matching and mining, and then build up from there.
4: And I would add that the importance, what Rebecca really touched on there, was start with your known fraud risks. And we at Grant Thornton, whenever we come in and help a, a client with this, the first thing we do is help them do some sort of fraud risk assessment. And that sounds very um, you know, formal and structured, and it can be, and it often should be. But even if it's a more informal way to assess where your risks are, what you don't want to do is go out and invest a lot of money in an analytics mm-hmm. activity that isn't even at your highest risk area. Now, I will say that I also agree with what Rebecca just said there are some low-hanging fruit areas which, you know, travel and purchase cards may not be any agency's largest fraud risk, but it's easy. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of really easy tools that you can that you can employ using basic business rules. And you're just looking for anomalies, looking for, you know, we did one with one agency once and we, we, we showed them the dashboards. It was real basic, you know, data visualization. And we said, okay, now here's the holiday transactions. Everyone that used their purchase card on a Christmas day or whatever. And then we were like, now we're going to look at the dashboard for the number of employees that have 12 or more purchase cards. And everyone looked puzzled like, we have employees with 12 or more purchase cards? Mm-hmm. And we were like, yeah, yeah you got 27 employees yeah. here that have more than 12 purchase cards. And they were baffled. How is that possible? Because they weren't using a basic d- data visualization, and if you're going through a bunch of Excel workbooks, you're not gonna pick that stuff out. So those kind, the power of that, and Power BI is on most people's mm-hmm. computer, and so the idea that you don't have the resources, that's, that's you know, there's easy ways to use some, some basic data visualization tools that can have an enormous impact.
2: Yeah, something as simple as taking a list of your employees' addresses, right? And then let's just put it in there and let's see if anything pops up. There's an easy match right there. So there's a lot of simple things that we can do. We don't have to start off big. And I know at SBA, we're very conscious. We don't start off big. We want to start off right. So That's we're right. not trying to just jump out there and, and get the you know the, the, the fanciest tool. Um, we start off with our own people. What do we have that we can use now? So use leverage the resources that you have and just kind of sit around and think outside the box. So, yeah, we don't have to get too complicated on it. Yep. And I think that with your, as we were saying, Rebecca was talking about the GAO fraud framework is very helpful. Um, And also um, uh, the playbook, very helpful tools, two helpful tools uh, that are, that has helped SBA in in their furthering the fraud risk management. Um, But we can talk about all this great stuff. Commit, the very first stage. Yeah. If I, well, you don't have tone at the top, the mm-hmm. support from senior leadership, you can want to start and brainstorm and kick the tires all you want. you got to make sure c- senior leadership is on board. So I think with anything that we do in terms of fraud risk management, make sure we've got the top on board with us.
3: Right, And I will also put in a pitch for the oh, the working group. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is what is, it is designed to do, to help share this information, this lesson learned, the data analytics library. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know it's still building, but that's what it's there for.
2: And Rebecca, I can mm-hmm. say I'm part of that, the, the OMB uh, Fraud Working Group. It's been great. Mm-hmm. We have been collaborating. We are um, producing the libraries. Mm-hmm. Now with the Integrity Act being in place, I don't know what that means for um, the free-to-working group. Um, I guess we have a new name. It's the a bigger group. Yes, yeah. yes. So it'll be interesting. But we are doing a lot of collaborating across the agencies, which is which is unheard of. It's already hard internally to collaborate. Mm-hmm. And then you say external. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. I, you know. But we are doing a lot of great collaboration with HUD and other different agencies uh, on this working group. So OMB is doing a great job with that. Yeah.
3: And one other thing where I think that's important is a lot of agencies think they need to reinvent the wheel. But there are cross-cutting fraud issues. I mean, grant fraud, you know, there are certain ways that shows up. Contracting fraud, there are certain ways that shows up. So you don't need to create, you know, an entire fraud risk data analytic program specific to, you you know, your agency or your Mm -hmm. program when you know that there are these specific types of risk that tend to show up in certain types of areas. So learn from
2: others. Yeah, yeah. Payroll fraud. Yeah. So, I mean, exactly, it's, it's, exactly. it's all of us. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. That's really
0: interesting. That's a good point. I, I I think you guys just hit on a lot there. That's really important. And I'm really glad you were able to do that. One thing I um, think is, you know, is along the lines of what you guys were talking about is this idea that I think there's a culture in a lot of agencies that this is the IG issue, or this is the GAO issue, that this is kind of the responsibility of the oversight bodies Mm -hmm. and not within programs. And one of the things that that working group aims to do is bridge that gap between agencies and the oversight bodies. And Linda, I I know you guys have also done some research on how that relationship is evolving or could potentially evolve.
4: Yeah, and that's not a good news story, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, You know, Andrea talked about the need for tone at the top. Um, again, the, the survey we did with um, Senior Executive Service uh, Association definitely reinforced the concept that there's a, a commitment issue, that senior leadership doesn't understand that this is important and that it's a priority. We also convened last year a series of roundtables of different federal agencies mm-hmm. through the Department of Treasury. They were doing um, sort of gro- government-wide um, fraud, fraud efforts. Um, the playbook that, that Andrea mentioned came out of that effort, too, the, anti- the government-wide anti-fraud playbook. And when we did those roundtables, it was um, somewhat depressing to talk to these folks. We did our first one on culture, and everyone said, "You know, I don't know how to get my senior leadership to care about this. Honestly, they're not going to give us resources. It's not a high priority." Um, you know, and what what I've found in my work since I left GAO is that agencies primarily do something when GAO comes in and tells them to do it. And when GAO hasn't come in to do it, they're not seeing it as a priority. They're not committed to this. So we have a long way to go before we can get culturally agencies to understand that managing fraud is their responsibility. And that is the purpose of why GAO put the fraud framework together. Was as you mentioned, there was a lot of talk that this is the not not our responsibility. It's a responsibility of the IGs. And I think that GAO has been on a on a journey trying to communicate to agencies that it is their responsibility. And it's it's a it's been a, t- a tough journey. And we're five years out now from the GAO fraud framework being issued, and it's it's a little disheartening to me that at this stage five years later, we still have so much, so far to go to get senior leadership to understand this is a, this is a priority. Yeah,
2: and I'll say um, she's, uh, both uh, Rebecca and Linda are correct. You know, being, you know, working in the agency, when I started talking about Frida, the first uh, group that I reached out to was the IG, and uh, we started communicating. I said, hey, this law is about to be passed. What are you doing? Can we collaborate? And my IG is awesome. Mike Ware is awesome. The the best IG I've ever come across, Um, you know, but he was willing, ready to figure out how we can work together as a team. But when I started going down to the program office and the senior leadership, they would say, well, that's the IG's responsibility. So really, it's been a couple of years of trying to get each office to understand that it's no longer just the IG's responsibility. They're looking at the fraud. We're trying to look at the risk of fraud. So two different things. You're right. We're not, I'm not a fraud investigator, even though I'm a certified fraud examiner. I'm not here to investigate, but I'm here to help you to identify where the fraud can, be taking place.
0: That's great. And before we move on from the kind of story about data, there were some interesting points um, that came out of Grant Thornton in their follow-up interviews that I wanted to touch on. And one of them um, is this: the financial barriers. And I think it's interesting when we talk about this idea of creating senior leadership buy-in. You guys talked a little bit about how NOAA hasn't had a significant data, data analytics team for about eight years because of their budget cuts. and And I think for agencies who don't have or don't feel like they have the budget to be able to commit to these projects. Um, I'm curious if you guys can just, you know, we talked a little bit about data mining and matching. If there are any other really small, low-cost ways that agencies can, if they don't feel like they have the budget, still feel like they can take a lead on this?
2: So I would say, um, you know, training. We can get training anywhere. I work with, you know, Treasury, any of the other sister agencies to figure out, hey, what training have you developed that I can, you know, use? Um, So basically, training is not that hard, whether you do it online and you put it up with your annual training with cybersecurity or some other type of training or just have some training. I mean, you don't have to pay the contractors to come in and do the training for you. You find that person or that group that actually has an interest. I mean, being a champion um, for fraud or ERM is very important. And I think, you know some simple training, you know, you can produce that. Also, if you do any type of oversight, a lot of our agencies, they are overseeing, whether it's banks, whether it's grantees or whatever, take a look at your review plan, your audit plan, your examination plan, just add some indicators, just adding a simple checkbox that says, you know, was there any indication of fraud, right? A lot of times when we go out and we do these oversight reviews, we're actually looking at eligibility, if the loan was underwritten correctly, you know, did the agent or did the bank or the grantee follow our guidelines, right? How about let's just look and see if the documentation looks a little off, right? Can somebody be, manipulating the, the, the documentation in any way, right? I've been on site at banks where I found that documentation was manipulated. I looked at the signature, it didn't match the same line of the next signature, and I'm like, "There looks like there's some photocopying going on here. So something as simple as adding a checkbox to your risk and control matrix or your review plan or your audit plan just to start people to start thinking what could fraud look like, right? Yeah. So there are some simple things that you can do.
3: Yeah, and along those lines, the what can fraud look like, I think that's an area where there's... Um, lots of free opportunities for consciousness raising. You know, Linda and Andrea, they're steeped in, you know, the knowledge of counter fraud. They know what fraud looks like. But when you're, you know, managing a program or you're implementing a program, you're providing benefits, that's probably not what's in your brain. You have no idea. So there are uh, free and easy ways to get a really good sense of what fraud could look like. And one of the main ways, when I'm starting a job and I want to know what it might look like in a particular area, I go to the DOJ press releases mm-hmm. and I do some searching and I see all of the really interesting ways that fraud schemes have unfolded across the public sector. And so that's completely free except for your time. Mm-hmm. But you can get some really good ideas, not to commit fraud, but to <laughs> to see how a fraud can look like in your program so that you'll recognize it if you see it. I think that's a great point, and I want to
0: hit more on how we tell stories about fraud in order to create a greater literacy and understanding for what fraud looks like within agencies. But we do have to stop here for our second break. We'll continue this discussion after a word from our sponsors. Once again, you're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network.
1: The
0: Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. I am here with Linda Miller from Grant Thornton, Andrea Pupils from the Small Business Administration, and Rebecca Shea from GAO, and we are discussing program integrity. Before the break, we were talking about some low-cost ways to bring program integrity into your office, and Linda, I wanted to give you a chance to discuss that as well.
4: Sure. Yeah. I, one uh, one thing that I think um, we learned when we did that work with Treasury was that a lot of agencies were unaware of the resources that Treasury offers for free. And among them, they have the Do Not Pay Business Analytics Center. And that is staffed with about 20 data scientists that will do program integrity-related data analytics for agencies for free. Um, This was unknown when we did our roundtables. Most agencies didn't know that 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 was a resource for them. And so uh, I really think it's important to know that if you don't have those resources to do analytics, you can contact the Do Not Pay Business Analytics Center, and they will pull your data and and, and create models for you and then return the, the results to you. So that's a really great resource. And I would say also that um, the new Integrity Act expands the use of Do Not Pay. Um, that's a data analytics effort in in some ways, because you're supposed to be bouncing uh, these payments against the Do Not Pay business. Data sets, data sets to, to make a dis- determination before you make a payment. The other thing to note is that some agencies don't feel that do not pay um, data sets are useful to them. Treasury is absolutely willing and very, very interested in expanding the data that's in the do not pay um, data sets. So if you're an agency and you have a specific data set you'd like to be matching against, you can contact Treasury and they will either try to get that for free or buy it in order to be able to use that specific data for your agency to match it against. And that's something I think a lot of agencies don't know. So the Treasury is a great partner in uh, in, in program integrity analytics.
2: Yeah, and Linda, you're correct. We actually used it, and I, pay, I didn't even know we used it. So I sat in on a presentation and said, oh, this sounds like a great resource. But what I did was contact the CFO to see if they used it and found out our Denver Finance Center actually uses it, and it's been a great partnership. There was a little, there's a little bit of um, – uh, a delay. in that as far as sharing, I think there's some sort of an agreement that has to be signed. So once the attorneys do what they need to do, it's been a great resource for our agency as well.
0: That's really great. I think it's important to realize uh, how many of these opportunities are available so that agencies can really utilize them, especially when we're talking about these large pieces of legislation that require agencies to be more forward-thinking and to address some of these program integrity issues. It, it's easy for us, I think, to talk about these big pieces of legislation, talk about the available data um analytics activities, but actually implementing this within agencies can be really different. So I want to take us back to the FRIDA Act um, of 2015. And Andrea, if you could speak a little bit about what the reality of that looks like, how it's working within agencies, and and some of the challenges.
2: Yeah, it's definitely been a challenge. Enterprise risk management, you know, obviously fraud risk is something that we do look at. It's just one piece. It's not uh, bolted on. It's fraud risk management has its own... um, uh, if you can say framework in wheels, but it's it's connected to the ERM framework. Um but some of the challenges we faced again is talking about the culture, getting senior leadership to understand that it is, you know, um senior leadership's responsibility. Um, in terms of fraud risk, the silos, just like ERM, getting leaders to wanna just to break down the walls to have a discussion. And then the transparency issue, okay, we break down the walls, now let's have an honest discussion. So just trying to get to that next level of, okay, now we're all talking, but now let's all be honest, right? Because we'll all talk about what's in our backyard, but we will not open the door to our basement. Um, funding, you know, a lot of people when I've approached different program offices and I'm like, hey there's this new thing we got to do. Like oh, we don't have any funding. Did any funding come to it? So a lot of times they look at the funding piece, but as we said at there are some things that we can do uh, that doesn't cost a lot of money. Uh, One thing I will say, uh, one of the advantages with SBA is that they hired me to do this job. So this is not an add-on feature and I do something else. I do all ERM and and, and I'm an advisor to the Fraud Risk uh, Council. Um, So Designating that one person to champion—that's what keeps senior leadership engaged. Um, and SBA has been very supportive of ERM and fraud risk management because program integrity means a lot to SBA. Um, balancing quality and quantity. So what I've what's happened to me when I've gone into program offices and I, you know, I've talked about you know fraud risk. They're like, look. I have to get so many, you know, applications approved, okay? I don't have time for my staff to look and try to figure out if there's any fraud or anything else like that. I'm getting my uh, – I'm getting rated on how many I can get approved, not how many applications that I dinged that potentially were fraudulent. Now, you got to think about it. So if it's not something that's in somebody's performance plan, if there's no metrics tied to it, you know, it's very hard. We have a mission to do. We've got to get that money out there, whether it's for disasters or the small business community. We, you know, we can't think to stop and say, well, what about fraud? Do we put on our fraud hat or do we – you know, reach the, you know, reach the public. The other thing is being, we have to change from being proactive or sorry, from being reactive to proactive. We are very, the government is very reactive. Let GAO or the IG come and tell us something and then we'll fix it. But we know as fraudsters, fraudsters are always thinking of ways to get ahead of us. So those are some of the challenges that I think agencies are going to face similar to what we've faced, you know, really changing the mindset, the culture, um, you know, trying to understand balance between mission Um, So it's, it's been a pretty interesting journey. Um, But I think that if you have somebody that champions the effort, you'll go a long way than adding on additional duty to a CFO person or risk management person, you know, identify that person. um, And it'll take you a lot further.
0: I also think part of this conversation is identifying that fraud is not just a financial element. It's not just the numbers behind fraud. But there is a much, when we're talking about government, there is a much broader landscape here. And Rebecca, I know you can speak to that.
3: Yeah, this has been a little bit of a soapbox uh, that I've been on lately. Um, And it speaks to what Andrea was saying about changing the mindset. You know, For a long time, we have thought and focused on you know the the impacts of fraud on the federal taxpayer dollar and that's important um, lately we started talking about the impacts on uh, reputation you know reputational risk but i think it's also important to think about how fraud is um, it has broader individual impacts it can have impacts on health and safety the environment people's lives uh, it can also be an enabler for other risks, criminal uh, and national security risks. So a small fraud, or what might appear to be a small fraud, can have outsized impacts. And you know, just to give you two examples, I think one of the one of the really poignant examples of this that I came across a couple years ago is when I was looking at the 9/11 Commission report. And in that report, they detail how Al Qaeda had this um, an elaborate fraud program. Uh, passport and visa fraud program that they used to exploit the U.S. passport uh, system. So through um, you know through this elaborate system that they had in Afghanistan they were able to get uh, fraudulent passports and visas to enter the U.S. to study in the states through the the aviation school and then perpetrate the largest uh, terrorist incident on our soil. So that small or seemingly small, passport and visa fraud had huge impacts on so many, so many individuals and lives and, and so many other things. Another example, um, and this is sort of a, a perennial issue in DOD, in contracting, um, there was a recent case where a, a DOD contractor who was providing parts to air, uh, aircraft parts uh, was disbarred for providing um, defective parts. For years, had been providing defective parts, and then, while disbarred, y- through the use of shell companies, um, continued to contract with the Department of Defense, providing those defective parts for aircraft. Now, uh, there's the financial cost, obviously, of the contracts, but there's also the cost on the potential risk to the mission, national security, and then the warfighter lives that could be at risk in any number of ways, uh, you know, with those aircraft. So those are just a couple of examples of how a seemingly small fraud or what people might consider as inconsequential uh, on the financial side have outsized impacts on lives. So, so oh, yeah, connecting, you know, when, when you have your staff and employees connecting the activities, their internal control processes to those broader risks, I think maybe you get that buy-in or you could get that buy-in in a way that you might not with thinking about the dollars.
4: I would agree. I would add that um, we've been, at Grant Thornton, we've been um, working a lot more in the cyber threat intelligence space. So uh, my fraud practice now integrates cyber threat intelligence into our fraud risk assessments. And so we work with this. We partner with a, a small threat intelligence company in, um, in Arlington called GroupSense. And um, recently, we, I, was do, I was giving a presentation with the CEO, and he was providing some screenshots of some from the dark web. And one of them was, um, he redacted the name, but it said, I'm, I work for X bank. I hate it here. I'll sell you anything. Oof. And I think the important part of that, it scared everybody, of course, but understanding the, this concept of what they call insider threat. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it used to be that people didn't, if they got really upset that they didn't get promoted or they just hated the culture or their new boss, they weren't able to just go download the Tor browser, the, the Onion browser. The onion router um, and access the dark web, and go offer for sale anything that's in their agency. But mm-hmm. now they are, and so in that new threat environment, it's really, really important to consider all the ways that fraud can manifest itself. Mm-hmm. You know, fraudsters are more than willing to be out there buying the information that is that is for sale on the dark web that most agency leadership have no idea is available. And so I think it just really highlights this the threat that is caused not just by external actors like the contractors who are putting the, the defective parts into those, but also people within your own mm-hmm. agency and their ability to wreak real havoc um, with the with the advent of the dark web. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, uh,
2: man, yeah, the insider threat, yeah, that is, I think, you know, for the government, we're very good at, th- at pointing outside and saying the external and what these people can do to us, but we don't do a good job at looking within internally and seeing how um, we can do things, right? Um, you know, a lot of the... Um, uh, Fraud examinations or things that I've been a part of. um, It's normally somebody inside. So we had a bank where we had a VP that was being the Robin Hood. He was, you know, saving the struggling uh, local businesses, and um, he was, you know, uh, fraudulently signing loans. He was doing like a Ponzi scheme, uh, but he was a Robin Hood. He was saying basically he wasn't really benefiting from it. But when you really look at it, he kept that six-figure salary. Um, So you know, you have to look internally. A lot of times we have we have a bank that just. Um, a CEO that just got arrested uh, for doing self-dealings and kickbacks. He's a CEO of one of, uh, you know, a bank. Um, and, um, you know, so a lot of times the actors are in-house and we have to be very mindful of that, that, you know, any of us can turn bad. And one thing I always say is that we talk about the fraudsters and we do fraud um, risk assessments. Um, that's another easy tool, just get you a fraud risk assessment and just start jotting down the fraud risk. That's a doesn't cost anything, um, but you can get one from AC, ACFE. You know, you can create one. We have a template that we're thinking of using across the agency. Um, but sit around and really think about what could go wrong. So here's the thing. I can think like a fraudster and put on this really bad hat from all my 2020 um, and Dateline things that I've watched, right? Um, But then what about what's harder is thinking about the good person that's gone bad, right? So the good person, the people like you and I, that to me is where the difficulty comes in in trying to figure out where the gaps are. So you've got the fraudster. Think like a fraudster, right? Let's do that. Let's think like a fraudster. But then you also got to think about or think like the good person gone bad. Now, cover up those gaps.
0: Yeah, I think all of those different perspectives and being able to really put yourself in everyone else's shoes is really important for understanding all the different places risk can come from. And those stories that you guys just mentioned are so shocking. And it is hard to believe that someone you may work with may be the person that's gone bad. But hearing those stories, understanding the larger impact, connecting it to things like national security and the loss of human life is it's difficult, but difficult it's very important. And I think that that could be a very powerful tool to shake up the culture in the agency and say, this is something I do actually need to focus on. We are right up against our final break. When we return, we will wrap up this discussion on Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are entering our last segment of the show, which has been focusing on program integrity and integrating program integrity into your workforce. We've talked a lot about what is fraud, waste, and abuse, what is fraud risk, and what is really the agency's responsibility as opposed to the responsibility of oversight bodies. And in one of the things that we've touched on quite a bit is that. Agencies tend to have this view of being reactive to the IG and GAO, and I think sometimes the relationship can almost be antagonistic in that they think the IG is there to pinpoint everything that they've done wrong rather than uh, to work with them in improving the integrity of a program. So I wanted to discuss ways that we can create a learning relationship among the oversight bodies and agencies.
2: Well, I will say, um, so again, I have an awesome IG, and so we have a great relationship. But as he told me, when you meet one IG, you've met one IG, which means every IG is not the same. Um, I know for me, what I'm doing is I'm trying to find any chance to uh, basically explain what ERM is. Um, what fraud risk is, and to make sure that we do have a good relationship. So next week, um, Siggy has asked me to come with, uh, join their ERM working group and do a presentation. Um, and so I've sent them my slides. And on the very last slide, I have how can we work better? And basically the two things, being open-minded and thinking outside of the box. I just need the auditors to think outside of the box, right? ERM, um, how we're approaching fraud risk management may not be by the book, but if it's working, let it work. Um, then also I know with OMB, they, they, we, I'm on the uh, ERM Executive Steering Committee. We are actually uh, kicking off a working group. We actually This will be our second meeting this week uh, talking about GAO coordination. Again, trying to coordinate and basically educate um, GAO and IG on kind of what we're doing and the challenges that we face. Um, so they can understand that it may not – we may not have the seven items that you suggested we put in our, let's say, our our profile. But it is one of the items, is it really that serious to write a finding on? So that's how we're trying to attempt to work at the relationship because it's very sensitive. As soon as you approach any IG anywhere, they say, oh, oh wait, wait, conflict, right? So already they're out there standing, you know, but, um, you know, if you have a good – um IG and if you don't, it's about educating and hopefully collaborating, right? My thing when the IG first came in or the, his his staff came in to request some information from me, the first thing I said is, wait a minute, are you trying to kill my program? And they said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, we are not trying to kill the ERM program. And I said, Okay, well then let's talk. Can we talk? And so what they initially asked for, we were able to basically compromise. I was able to help them, you know, attain what they needed to attain and they were able to respect that transparency is very hard. To get senior leadership open and talking, right, remember what's in the basement, it's very hard. So if your goal is not to kill the program and it's really about the intent of A-123 and getting us to figuring out what's really going wrong in our programs, then work with us. Now, that doesn't mean that every ERM um, liaison or chief risk officer is doing the job that they should be doing. But what I am saying is, listen, make that determination and at least be open-minded.
4: I think Rebecca will need to jump in from the GAO perspective, but I'll s- just say that I was at GAO for ten years, so I was a member of the oversight community. But what I've, what we've learned through our work with agencies, and especially in the survey that we just completed, was um, there, there's a sentiment that the agencies feel the IGs, in particular, are are being very adversarial, are looking for ways that they can get them. And, um, and are not looking to be collaborative and help them grow. I haven't seen one IG yet that has made a fraud risk management recommendation that's told an agency that they should do a fraud risk assessment that's told them to consider the risks. They they find one area and they make a very specific recommendation around that. And it would be nice if the IG community would pull up and start helping the agencies build better proactive fraud risk management programs rather than being adversarial and looking for little You know ways to ding them on the head, and that's that's what we've been hearing from the agencies. And they say that GAO they have a much better uh, reaction to GAO. Their feeling is GAO is being more collaborative and looking at a higher level. And when we wrote the GAO fraud framework, one of the things we wanted to do was give the agencies the opportunity to take a risk based approach, so that they wouldn't have to you know make come back and say yes we did have we we paid you know. 46 dead people with Social Security, but we didn't do these other things because we prioritize this higher-risk area. And they need cover. They need to be able... The IG needs to recognize that they're taking a risk-based approach. And I think that 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 has been a very difficult uh, challenge. The IG has not shifted yet.
3: Well, um, so I'm not going to try to speak for the IGs. um, But what I will say is, you know, all that conversation we had before about knowing what fraud looks like, the IG doesn't need to imagine. They don't need to go out and look it up. They've seen it. So so they are an incredibly rich resource and um, a resource that agencies should be going to to help them identify what those fraud risks are. And that is a leading practice in our fraud risk framework that agencies, in their, as they evaluate and adapt their approach, they you know look to the investigations and the cases and they can get that information from the IGs to help them better now. I will also say some IGs that we've heard from are, they're all in it. You know, they're right in there, like, you know, the one that you mentioned, uh, SBA, Andrea. You know, they understand that they've got this information and they are part of the solution and they can help. Maintaining their independence, of course, mm-hmm. but that they have information that can that can help and support. It is still a cultural change for some other IGs, you know, because of that that you know, strange space that they're in where they have to maintain their independence, but they also are the keepers of some really useful information. So it is a learning space. If you don't get that information from your IGs, I would say go out and ask for it. Mm-hmm. Seek it. Try to develop that relationship. And Andrea, I know you said that you, you went right there. Mm-hmm. You know, you went to, to get it, and it's worked out for you. So, so you, you know, if your IG has not bridged that gap for you, go bridge that gap. Um, so... That's what I'll say for yeah. the IGs. Um, and as for GAO, I appreciate the um, the compliments, but I do recognize we do have pointy elbows also. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but we also do try to provide tools and resources to help. You know, if there ever is a crystal ball for what GAO is going to be looking for in a fraud audit, it's in the fraud risk framework. <laughs> so, you know, there's no guessing there. Yeah. This is what we're looking for. And like you said... You know, they are leading practices, and we're very clear in the framework that you do not have to have every last leading practice um, because maybe it doesn't apply. You just need to have the justification, and GAO, we're going to want the documentation of that justification, (laughs) just to be clear, you know, and honest and transparent there. But um, every single leading practice in there, that's the crystal ball for what we'll be looking for. And I think that can also help ameliorate some of the, the issues. And then one other thing that I would, you know, just throw in there is that, and we've heard this today, sometimes it's really hard getting the attention, getting the resources, but sometimes a GAO audit can be a really good catalyst, so use that. An IG audit can be a really good catalyst to say, look, we've got an issue, we've got a problem here, let's, you know, take what the IG or GAO has said and use it to our advantage to address these issues.
2: And, Rebecca, just so I know the listeners are saying, well, what can I get? Where can I start with the IG? As, you, as I said, it started with a conversation about Frida way back then. Um, but one actual real uh, tangible um, um, outcome that we received is that the IG um, uh, recently agreed to share anonymized data um, with our fraud council related to um, hotline tips. Right. So they're not letting us see all the data. So we don't know where it's coming from. But we have an idea of what area is it coming from con- uh, contracting? Is it coming from North Carolina? So we are looking at data that has been redacted um, that can help give us an idea of where we need to start kind of focusing efforts. So that has been a great, a big, a big plus for us to be able to see that information versus just guessing where could things be coming from.
0: Yeah. One thing I think Andrea really hit on is that you need to establish a common ground in the beginning of the conversation and say, look, as long as you're not trying to shut our program down and nitpick us, and as long as we're not trying to create conflicts for you, we have a common ground that we can utilize, and I think that's really powerful and and will be really important for the IG community um, as well as for the agencies because there is a benefit to being able to work together. I also know that the Integrity Act, uh, part of what they're focusing on in these working groups, is getting OMB and the IG community to the table so that they can establish better pathways for sharing data when it can be shared and figuring out what can be shared and then how the agencies can utilize it. And I, you know, I really agree that the fraud framework is an incredible outline for what agencies need to be focusing on and can be a great catalyst for directing their focus. And, you know, as a a program manager, if you have not checked out the fraud framework yet, it, it is extremely helpful. We are in the last couple of minutes of our show, and I, I just want to give the panel a chance to go through a, and any final tips that you might have for either program leaders or other federal employees listening, um, if, if there are things that you think are important to hit on before we close.
4: Sure. I'll just um, put in a, a another reminder to um, agencies whose leadership may not be as on board as, as they would like. Um, to really look for those catalysts, those stories, those examples that can try to get your agency leadership to prioritize and invest in program integrity. And I think the, the new act will really hopefully help push that along a little bit more. But um, anything that agencies can do to start getting more leadership buy-in and more commitment at the top is going to be absolutely vital. Yeah, and I'll say,
2: um, to to if we really want to get serious about this, whether it's ERM, whether it's, um, you know, fraud risk management, whether it's, improper mean, payments, performance plans. So if we want to get really serious, right, for the government, put it in our performance plan. We all want to get that five. So if you put something in our performance plan, uh, we will accomplish it.
3: Mm-hmm. That's great. And I'll just reemphasize the personal connection that every federal employee has to managing fraud risk because it's not just about the dollars. It can mean lives. It can mean the environment. It can mean, you know, health and safety. So the lots of lots of outsized potential impacts for managing your fraud risks. Yeah, I think really breaking it down and reminding
0: employees that this is it impacts them, too, and it it doesn't just impact them and their agency, but it impacts our entire country and that there are real risks here. Telling those stories is a great way to start, and I'm glad we were able to have this show today to tell some of those stories and give agencies uh, a better idea of what this landscape looks like. Uh, that is all the time we have for you today. Andrea, Rebecca, Linda, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a really informative show, and I have no doubt that our listeners are learning a lot from it. Thank you, everyone, back at home for joining us on Fed Talk. As a reminder, Fed Talk is brought to you by the federal employment law firm Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Have a great weekend.